Hi there, everyone. My name is Misty Denman, and as always, it's my joy and pleasure to get to study God's Word alongside of you. I spent a fair amount of time daydreaming about what I wanted to be when I grew up as a kid. It's one of the few things I actually daydreamed about. I would alternate between sometimes I wanted to be a veterinarian, sometimes I wanted to be a nurse, um, sometimes when I was very ambitious, I wanted to be the governor of Texas. When I was delusional, I wanted to be a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. <laughs> but really, I often wanted to be a teacher. And I did end up becoming an elementary school teacher. But when I was a kid kind of daydreaming about being a teacher, it wasn't a present-day teacher. I was crazy about um, Little House on the Prairie. And for lots of years growing up, I still kind of really love it. And I always pictured myself as that, like, young, rosy-cheeked with the loose bun teacher in the one-room schoolhouse, and all of the kids were in front of me, and they loved me and loved what I taught. And, um, and because this was all a daydream, right, I never had to teach math. I only got to teach history and literature, which were my two favorite things. So I did become a teacher, not that kind of teacher, but today I'm going to bring out a little bit of the English teacher because we are going to talk about an element of literature called an epilogue. We are coming to the end of 2 Samuel. If we go all the way back to the beginning, we studied 1 Samuel last spring, 2 Samuel this spring. That's actually one long continuous story that was broken into two parts. And we sort of finished the story in many ways last week. These last four chapters, 21, 22, 23, and 24, are an epilogue to 1 and 2 Samuel. So an epilogue is something that serves as just a final piece of a story. An author will often add one to either give us some closure into the characters' lives, maybe some additional insight into what we already know about them, something that the main story didn't get us and we wouldn't otherwise have. So we're ending David's life, this great saga in these last, um, these last couple of semesters with this epilogue. And one thing to note also is that we won't be studying these in order necessarily. So just go according to the date in your study questions. But if you go back to the beginning with me and remember all the way back to when we had the prophet Samuel, he was a servant of God. He served Israel by appointing her first two kings, Saul, who is the king of the people's choosing, and now David, who's the king of God's choosing. And one of the things we've learned through these two books is that God is the one who's the true king. And it's God who works purposefully and powerfully through earthly leaders to bring about his good plans. And so in this four-chapter epilogue that we begin to study this week, we do get some deeper insight into who David was, um, his heart, and how his actions influenced the nation of Israel. I think we also get some um, additional insight into the heart of the king of kings as well and how he and David interacted with one another. Okay, so you probably noticed as you studied this week's story, we've got or chapter that we've got two distinct stories. They are not in chronological order with each other or with the rest of the book. Really what binds them together is this common theme where we see David as a lamp or a light to Israel. He's serving the nation as their spiritual and political and military leader, and Israel is the better for it. We've had um, lots of chapters where we've seen David at his worst, we're going to see David today really serving the nation of Israel. So open your Bibles with me. 
2 Samuel chapter 21. In this first part, you can follow along with me pretty carefully. I'm going to read it word for word. Later, we'll skip around a little bit. And so in this section, we see King David atoning for Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So there's a lot going on just in these two verses. So we're going to stop here for a bit. The first thing we see is that there's this three-year famine that prompts David to seek God out on behalf of his people. And I think there's a pretty obvious lesson here for us that we won't talk about for a long time, but that's be quicker than David to go to God with your problems. I mean, as soon as David talked to the Lord, the Lord responded. I don't think he had to wait, had to wait three years. I don't think he even had to wait three days. Um, this has been one of those reminders to me to go to God with my problems and go to him quickly and keep going to him because David Um, I mean, God didn't waste any time in responding to him. And I wonder what suffering might have been avoided um, had David not spent months either ignoring the problem, thinking he could solve it himself, thinking it would just end on its own. Um, Let's go to God as soon as we know there's an issue. When he finally did go to the Lord, I love how he does it in that just very personal and direct way we see uh, see David do throughout his life. God also speaks to him rather plainly and says there's blood guilt on David, on Saul and his family. Okay, so we know David is king now. It's been at least 30 years since um, Saul has died. So you may wonder, I wondered, why did something that Saul did so long ago uh, now result in God's punishment on the whole nation? So here's the deal. First, we need to know that blood guilt refers to the unlawful taking of human life. Uh, we read about the origins of that blood guilt in our study questions this week when we went back and looked at that story in Joshua. Joshua was tasked with taking um, the Israelites into the promised land for the first time. And God's very specifically said, you're to drive out all of the inhabitants of the land now out outside of your borders, and this is only to be a land for um, God's people. Israel, God said he wouldn't do it alone. Israel was going to um, have all of God's power behind him. God told his people he was going to do the work, putting the enemy into their hands, driving the enemy out. His power was going to be at work through their obedience if they would just do what he asked them to do. So the Gibeonites are one of these groups that they were to um, push out of the land. They were pagans. They were not God followers. Joshua allowed himself to be tricked. And they were pretty sneaky people. You have to give them credit for that. But he allowed himself to be tricked into making a treaty with them that would allow them to stay in the land and live there. It would spare their lives forever and allow them a home in the promised land forever. And according to God's law, that oath that Joshua swore in the Lord's name was binding forever, period. Look with me on your verse sheet at Numbers 32. We looked at this in our study questions, but it's a very important verse to understand this story. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according 
to all that proceeds from his mouth. And this was part of God's law. Vows were serious business. Joshua knew it when he made it. Saul knew it when he was king. Israel knew it then. Israel knows it now. God's people were to be people who kept their word no matter what. And it is a reminder also that our words now and the promises we make are important as well. Look with me at what Jesus says in Matthew 5.37. He says to us, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. But while Saul was king of Israel, he did break that oath. He had some of the Gibeonites killed. When, where, how that happened is not recorded in scripture, but we know that it was true. As king, he represented the nation. He would have brought his people in to um, being a part of those crimes. Two crimes are committed here. First, he broke the vow that said that he wouldn't kill them. Then, actually, obviously, he, he kills them as well. Those, both of those um, crimes carried the death penalty under God's law. And as leader of the nation, Saul would definitely bear the brunt of the responsibility, but he wasn't alone in that. Other Israelites participated in the murdering of the Gibeonites. The vow Joshua made was well known across the nation to the people. Saul breaking that vow would have been well known. And it appears that in the decades since this atrocity, that broken vow, the resulting um, deaths haven't been addressed by anyone in Israel. So this famine is now God's just punishment on a leader and on a nation who in the years since have neither moved to make any kind of amends or reparations or even expressed any kind of sorrow or regret over what happened. A holy and righteous God cannot ignore sin. Um, Maybe God's been waiting patiently in these decades for Israel to remember what they've done and repent. They have not. But David now, as the spiritual lamp of Israel, must make amends for um, Israel's national blood guilt. So that's sort of the setup for the story. Continue with me, reading in verse 3. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, It's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither it is for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, David, What do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul. That's his homeland, the chosen of the Lord. And and notice here how they make this little dig. Hey, Saul was the chosen of the Lord. He's the representative of, of your God. And the king said, I will give them. The king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between Jonathan, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took two sons of Rizpah. She was one of Saul's concubines, whom she bore to Saul. And then we'll skip on. And the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul. So that would have been five of Saul's grandsons. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death on the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
So seven descendants pay for Saul's sin with their lives because the shedding of blood is required for the forgiveness of sin. Two of these men were Saul's sons with his concubine, Rizpah. The other five were um, brothers, and they were um, Saul's grandsons. And this is a hard story. David's life has been rife with um, violence and bloodshed. This story has felt uniquely uncomfortable and hard for me. But this story also shows us that God is holy and that he hates sin and that the wages of sin is death. Israel was under God's law at the time. That law was good. And while God has always been patient with his people, I think he was patient in the intervening years between the original crime and now. He also demands that sin be dealt with. And I've really struggled as I've been studying this story to um, kind of think about the men that were killed. But I put pen to paper and really wrote this early last Friday morning. That was Good Friday, the day that we remembered um, Jesus going to cross to pay for our sin. And it, it became clear to me that morning, I think it was God's goodness that I was writing on that morning that I should be uncomfortable with this story because Israel's sin, because my sin, should never be taken lightly. Our God is holy. Their sin, our sin, my sin must be paid for just like this sin had to be paid for. And so what this story has finally done for me is to really drive me to gratitude and worship that just has filled my soul in the last week um, that I no longer have to for my own sin, that we're no longer under the law, but now under grace. In God's great love for us, we know we sent a son, and Jesus, though sinless himself, and these seven men were not sinless, but Jesus was. He laid down his life for ours. He was the perfect sacrifice. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we don't have to. Um, And it's not on your verse sheet, but listen to the truth of Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So when we think about these seven men who died for the sins of Israel, I think what we can do is be so grateful beyond measure that Jesus shed his blood for us. So I'm going to continue on. I want to pick up in verse 10 and read 10 through 14. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. Um, So this would have been exposed out in the open. Sackcloth was a sign of mourning. From the beginning of harvest, that was the day the men died, until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul in Gilboa. And he, David, brought them up from there, the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish his father. So that means that they brought Saul and his son Jonathan's bones from this foreign land where they were killed and buried them in the tombs of their own people, which would have been very important. They did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for land. Seven men were executed on the first day of the barley harvest. Normally, this would have been a happy time of beginning to gather crops. It would feed and bless the people. There would have been, um, this would have been a time of 
prosperity and work together, happiness, thinking about the months to come of all the provisions they would have. During this famine and this particular brutality, there would have been nothing to celebrate. And we aren't sure exactly why these bodies were left up for so long, because according to God's law, um, Jewish law said that those bodies should have been taken down and buried within the day. The Gibeonites probably intended that those bodies would be left up as a display for their gods, little g, until their gods brought rain. This was a pagan practice. It had nothing to do um, with the real living God. It shouldn't have been a part of God's kingdom. This was the kind of thing God knew would happen when he asked Israel to drive the pagans out of Canaan in the first place so that there wouldn't be this mixture of pagan practices in God's law. None of this would have happened in the first place if Joshua had not made this treaty in the first place, obeyed God, expelled the Gibeonites. Sin often has long-term consequences that we can't anticipate in the moment. And that's another thing I think that we've all very much learned from um, uh, David's life in this study. But Rizpah, a mother of two of these um, men, two of her her two only sons um, and a relative to the other five, heroically, faithfully under the most, if you really think about it, unimaginable circumstances, protects these bodies um, when their bodies are left exposed, Rizba keeps vigil, protects them from further desecration for months on end. I won't go into what that looked like, but I think we can all imagine it. Day and night, she waves her arms. She puts herself between the bodies of these men she loved and the wild animals and the birds of prey that would be drawn to them. Uh, day and night for weeks on end, she was this very public spectacle. And she was a reminder to the men, uh, that these men were Israelites. They were God's people, and they should have been given a proper burial. She was not going to give up until she saw that happen. And she was a woman who did what she could to honor and protect her sons, even after they they were dead. And I would imagine that a lot of people thought she was crazy, crazy with grief, um, crazy with desperation. I don't think she was crazy at all. I think she was a woman of extraordinary um, love and courage and stamina, who influenced the king himself. Everyone would have been talking about what she was doing. Eventually that word got to David. He heard the story too. I like how the scripture says that David's heart was moved. Rizpah's commitment to give those men a proper burial prompts David to give Saul and Jonathan honorable burials as well. So years ago, this would have been at the very end of 1 Samuel, um, Saul was king, He was at war with the Philistines. They're always at war with the Philistines, it seems like. He and his sons were killed in this battle, and their bodies were desecrated as an act of humiliation. They were taken down and buried, but not in their homeland, just where uh, close to where they had fallen. So David has to travel in order to bring their bodies home about 50 miles to where they were, retrieve them, travel 50 miles back. That was no small feat, and that's so that he can finally give this former king a uh, noble and final burial with the rest of his family, and of course his um, his dear friend Jonathan as well. So after that happens, then the bodies of these seven men are finally taken down. They're buried as well. Um, Rizba's commitment to honoring the dead men was not in vain. Their humiliation is over, and it's seen to by King David himself. 
And I think it's important to consider the fact that Saul had been king and his sons, princes of Israel, and David probably should have made the effort many years ago to give them a proper um, reburial, but he's finally doing it now, prompted by the actions of Rizpah. What she did was both an extraordinary act of devotion and the strong influence on David to do the right thing as well. And so finally, God takes his hand of judgment off of Israel. He sends the rain and he ends the famine. I think we've, as we've seen over and over in this and other studies, um, other weeks in our study, that our personal sin has ripple effects. The flip side of that that we see here is that our faithfulness and courage can also have a ripple effect through generations and circumstances as well. Rizba could not have known with the, that what she was doing for her own family would prompt David to right a wrong that was decades old and honoring Israel's first royal family, but it did. And I think that's one of those great things that comes out of this hard time. And one of the great lessons of First and Second Samuel is that both um, our sin has consequences, but our faithfulness has consequences as well. Everything about this story was hard. It's hard to live through. It's hard for us to understand. Um, Here's something that Warren Wearsbeer said in one of his commentaries about this story. I appreciated it very much. Whatever questions remain concerning this unusual event, this much is true. One man's sin can bring sorrow and death to his family, even after he is dead and buried. We must also give credit to David for dealing drastically with sin for the sake of the nation and for showing kindness to the house of Saul. So as we think about this story, I hope that we will each remember that God takes sin seriously, and so therefore we should be serious about taking sin or taking obedience and gratitude seriously. We should be serious about um, taking our own sin seriously and just be so grateful that Jesus died for our sins so that we do not have to. Uh, The prophet Samuel reminded us people of this truth in 1 Samuel 24 on your verse sheet. He says, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. And then Colossians in the New Testament says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and build up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I think these two verses together are great truths about our obedience and our gratitude to the Lord. Okay, so the first portion of our epilogue there shows David as Israel's political and spiritual lamp and leader. He's a light to the nation. The next part of our story, as I already said, it doesn't follow chronologically. Instead, it follows in theme. Uh, David is giving us, uh, we have this additional insight into David and his story, this time as Israel's spiritual and military lamp or light. And in this portion, we get a report of four separate battles between Israel and the Philistines. Again, the Philistines. Some Philistines um, who have been a thorn in the side of Israel from day one. But here, David's men win all four battles. So look with me beginning at verse 15. And honestly, if you want, you can just sort of listen along because um, I'm going to be skipping around um, some and leaving out some of the names. There was... which. I'm sure you will thank me for. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, 
and who was armed with a new sword thought to kill David. He was trying to, he saw that weariness and that weakness in him and was trying to take advantage of that. But Abishai, the son of Zerurah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go to battle with us lest you quench the lamp of Israel, meaning unless you die. After this, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. And then in 19, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. And then in 20, and there was war again at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, that not, not the Jonathan that was David's friend, but John, uh, David's nephew, Jonathan struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servant. So these Philistines are all descendants of these ancient people who were very physically formidable. When I think about the story of David and Goliath, for whatever reason I, I think of, and maybe it's because it's the pictures we've seen, the illustrations, that only Goliath was this one huge one, and everybody else was sort of, num- sort of um, normal size. He, but uh, what we see here is there is this whole group of people who are um, men of unusual stature. Um, the whole group would have been big and scary to fight, both because they were very strong and because they were able to um, wield these very heavy and superior weapons. Um, it's The scripture is super clear here to point out that um, physical strength and that superiority in their weaponry. They would have had uh, this great upper body strength that that they could have had uh, much better weapons with. And um, they had these new weapons. And did you know you can Google conversion charts of anything? Because um, I Googled how, um, you know, wanted to see how heavy the, the shekels were. And there's a shekels to pounds conversion chart, just like ounces to liters or whatever there is. And I thought that was kind of fun. Like countless times before, David goes to battle with his men. He has been a skilled and brave warrior his entire adult life. We know this is near the end of um, his, this, at least this first battle is near the, um, it, he's an elderly man. It's near the end of uh, his life, probably. Clearly his men love and trust him. He leads in every sense of the word. This time is different. They notice and the, and the uh, enemy notice that he is physically tiring during battle. So when David grows beery, weary in battle, Abishai comes to his rescue and kills the enemy. And this is the same Abishai we have been reading about before. He's been David's um, loyal friend and protector many times before. It was just a few weeks back. Uh, remember when the man taunted him and threw rocks at him and cursed him. It was Abishai who stopped and said, um, would you like me to take his head off? Because I will do that for you. Um, and David said, no, no, don't do that. But I thought everybody needs a friend like Abishai. He's always there with them and always has his back. And David's men wisely counsel him at this point to end his, real, his military career because what they recognize about David is um, while he has been a great soldier, he has even greater value to the nation than that. He has in his years as king despite his shortcomings, won their hearts and their loyalty and their respect. I think that's probably especially true with his military. He has saved their lives. He has protected the lives of their families and their homes and their livelihoods countless times. David listens to his men. He will no longer fight alongside them. And the lamp of Israel, David, um, as the lamp of Israel, David has been their political and their military and their spiritual guide 
throughout his reign. And I really admire David's humility and leadership here. I think he could have easily had a heavy hand, um, brushed off their concerns, um, counted it as just a bad day, assumed that since he was God's anointed, he could make his own decisions about what he was going to do. He never seems to do that. We've seen several times where David has listened to his advisors and really changed uh, track of what he was going to do, allowing his advisors to speak hard truths and receiving that counsel. He course corrects when necessary. And I can only imagine how hard it was for David to face the truth that this was his last military campaign. I know there have been times that he has been tired of fighting and not gone to war, but to know that this was the last time that he'd ever suit up alongside these men of him, fight shoulder to shoulder, face down the enemy, I think it's one of the things that he was best at and loved most in life. Um, Knowing this was the end of the road for that would have been really hard. But he knew truth when he heard it, and he was willing to follow God's timing and God's plan and not his own, and I think that's wise living. Three more battles follow. They may have taken place close in time together, or they may have been, um, this may have been a report combining different times and places into one story. But in each of the four total battles, the enemies are described as giants with superb weaponry who taunted Israel. And because Israel was God's people, taunting Israel meant basically you were taunting the living God himself. Okay, I love how verse 22 ends the chapter. These four were descended from the giants of Gath. That's big, scary, powerful. And they fell by the hand of David and the hand of his servants. And by the way, this is not the same Goliath as the Goliath before. So many people with the same names throughout this whole book. Here's another one of those. Um, I think if we take a moment to really bask in the glory of a faithful God and faithful men, this is a great story, even though it's full of bloodshed. And then I think we take a look back at David's very first battle against the Philistines. He wasn't even a true soldier yet. He was the little brother. He was sent in to give provisions to the big brothers. But when he got to the front lines, this is what he saw and what he's heard. So let's take a step back and remember what happens in 1 Samuel 17 and that old story of David and Goliath. So this is what, it was, what, what David saw and what the other men of Israel were doing at the time. On your verse sheet, all the men of Israel... When they saw the man, the the giant, fled from him and were much afraid. But David was not like those other men. He didn't cower at what he saw. He didn't forget that God had already promised Israel to give the enemy into their hands. David was singular in his faith then and in his courage. So this is what he does and says again, 1737. Um, This is the David and Goliath story. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And we know the rest of the story. God did deliver David um, physically um, and spiritually. Um, There was the physically mighty Goliath, but the spiritually mighty David, God was with him. As the lamp of Israel, David has trusted God openly and his people have watched in all of these years since then. You know, David's example has really encouraged their men to grow in their own faith and courage. David's men fight and defeat the Philistine giants four different times. And there is not a single mention here of hesitation or fear. And I think that's what happens when a faithful follower of God leads from 
and lives out trust and obedience in front of a watching world. Israel's fighting men are no longer cowering and afraid of the Philistine giants. They just start taking them out one after another. David has this unique and very visible role in his kingdom. His influence is vast, but God has a unique um, role for each of us as well. We may not have the reach of uh, influence that David had, but we do have an influence on those around us. So like David and those brave men of his, we too can remember that God is faithful to act on behalf of his people. We too can remember that his promises are always true, that he always keeps his word. And watching someone else's faith changes us. And other people watching our faith changes them. So let's be serious about a life of faith and obedience, knowing this encourages others to be faithful as well. We need each other. We need to encourage each other so that we can all live, speak, and believe David's words from Psalm 18 on your verse sheet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, the exalted and exalted be the God of my salvation. These were David's words that he lived according to while he was the lamp of Israel spiritually, physically, politically. They can be our words as well. His example can be ours. And so let's pray. Lord, you are so good and faithful to us. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be a sacrifice and to die um, in our place. Would we be women of deep gratitude and hopefulness and obedience because of that? Would we not forget, Lord, the great things you have done for us? Um, And Lord, I pray that we would take great courage from um, your promises, that we would take great courage from your word, that as the world um, and other believers look at our lives, they would see faith and obedience, and therefore um, be encouraged to be faithful and obedient as well. Lord, would your word make a difference, not just in our minds, but in our hearts? Um, Would we be women who walk um, in faith and courage because of um, what you have done for us? And I ask all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.